2: Real Life Real Crime is a true crime podcast Brought to you by Woody Overton And executive producer Toby Temple. Yeah, the right to remain silent, silent, silent. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a quarrel Prior to, during any question. I can't afford one a quarter point one for you. You understand your rights.
1: Your crime spree was over, son. Yeah, you thought
0: you had it lick. But Detective Overtone made you should to turn to shit. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa.
1: Whoa, whoa, whoa. Real life, real crime.
2: Warning. This episode of Real Life, Real Crime, the podcast, may contain descriptions of acts of violence or that are of a sexual nature. It should be for people that are 18 years or older. Heed my warning, people. I did not get the facts of these cases off the internet or from some television show. The facts we're retelling you were presented to us by the victims of the crimes or the perpetrators who committed the crimes against the victims. My description of the crime scenes are what I saw with my own two eyes. If you're going to get offended, please turn this podcast off now. Thank you. Hello, everybody, and I'm Woody Overton, your host of Real Life, Real Crime, the podcast. And today, I'm going to be telling you an old school story. I think it's going to be two parts, y'all. It's a really, really in-depth, kind of crazy story. And before I get started, I just want to tell everybody thank you. We love you and appreciate each and every one of you. Uh, Our numbers are growing phenomenally. And just for Courtney Coco, you better believe it's coming. It's probably sooner than... Many of you think. And please keep calling in your tips on Miss Barbara Blunt and stay tuned at the end of today's show for some announcements. So, with that, we'll get going. And we're going to call this one Mama Said. Mama Said. So, in 2005, I was working as a detective for the Livingston Parish Sheriff's Office. And I got to give you a little bit of background to set this story up as what was going on during this time. It was this story actually starts in September of 2005. And on August the 29th, the 2005 Hurricane Katrina hit the U.S. coastline, right? And simply one of the craziest times of my entire law enforcement career. And so just bear with me. I'm going to skip around and give you some some background on this, and you'll see why in a few minutes. But when Katrina hit, I, I remember the day before it it hit, Reese Holden and I it was a good buddy of mine at the time, and he was a deputy for the sheriff's office. I, I had a fishing camp down in Chauvin, Louisiana, So we drove against the traffic, because at the time, Katrina was a Cat 5, and it was going to be total devastation, supposed to hit New Orleans. And Chauvin Sound, south Louisiana and Terrebonne Parish. So I had a fishing camp, and we drove against the traffic. Everybody's evacuating to get out of the way of Katrina. Spent all night boarding up the camp, et cetera, and then came back through the traffic and got ready for the storm. Now, you heard me talk about on, on the hurricane episode, we we always had to be prepared, and uh, all our units were gassed up and everything. And now we're expecting to be a real shit show uh, when Katrina hits. And at the time, it had the bull's eye on New Orleans. And so Katrina comes, and we work it. It was pretty bad, even in our area. But And unfortunately for Mississippi, but thank God for New Orleans and us, it actually turned and hit Mississippi Directly, It's like New Orleans, I swear y'all, New Orleans has like a protection around it on storms. All these storms in the past 20 years that I know of that I worked in at the last second, all the ones that were directed in New Orleans, I always seen the last second, the storms turn, they never hit New Orleans. And K- Katrina was an example of that, right? But the problem with it was it didn't matter. The, the the storm itself was bad, total devastation on the coast, nothing left standing, really bad. Even even in Livingston Parish, we had a lot of bad damage and, and people without power and stuff like that. And New Orleans took a pretty good smack, but nothing in New Orleans couldn't handle. So a lot of people stayed behind and, and, and didn't evacuate. And a lot of people don't have the back then didn't have the money to to evacuate from New Orleans. I mean, a lot of working people and, and poor people, and, and New Orleans at the time was world famous for its housing projects. They were just these monument buildings in, in bad areas. It seemed like nowhere you went in New Orleans could you not go a couple blocks and hit one of the housing projects like the Desire projects or whatever, and these were bad places. I'm talking about where cops wouldn't go in without other cops for backup, and even though they had housing authority, police and stuff like that. But when they made it through the storm, right, everything's great until it wasn't. The next morning is when the levees broke, and that's what caused all the severe flooding and the deaths. I mean, I think like 1,800 people died from Katrina, and and most of that was from the flooding in New Orleans when the levees broke. If y'all, if y'all if you don't know what a levee is y'all outside of Louisiana City of New Orleans actually sits like in a bowl it's below sea level. You can stand in Jackson Square and look up on the levee and see the ships passing on the Mississippi River and they're above you. I mean that you're literally in a bowl so the levees are high bank protection from the rivers and the lakes. Uh, you got like Train. On the backside, of New Orleans, you only got the Mississippi River that runs through it. That's why they call it the Crescent City because the crescent that the the river makes through there. But when the levees broke, it was it was shit. It was game on one bitches. I mean, it was it, you know. And I'll tell you some, some stories about that in a minute. You had all these probably hundreds of thousands of people who had stayed behind thinking that they're going to dodge another bullet. And a bunch of them did go to the Superdome at the last second, and the top got blown off the Superdome and stuff like that. But that wasn't the problem. The problem was when the levees broke. And I'm going to tell you right now, there is nothing on this earth that's more powerful than the force of moving water. So the levees break. There's no power in New Orleans. New Orleans flooding. And then people are drowning. People are climbing into their attics, because the water's coming up so fast, they get in their attics and they think they're going to be safe. And they actually found bodies in the attics with their fingernails torn off and people that were trying to claw a hole through the roof to get out when the water came up so high. And they, they, a bunch of them drowned in their attics. And then there was no response. It, uh, governor Blanco was governor at the time. And it just the shit, they weren't prepared. And I mean, you had, I don't know how many hundred thousand people Stuck in New Orleans in the water, no food, no fresh water, bodies floating in the street. And tell you, it was a horrible time for everybody. And it's the worst time to be in law enforcement. I can promise you that. So Katrina hits. And when the the cries start coming out from New Orleans, uh, all the people uh, drowning and, and people, I mean, they had people calling the radio station from their cell phones some of the local AM stations or whatever stayed on the air and they're begging for help. I'm at such and such address and stuck in my attic and the water's coming up. We're going to drown. Well, guess what? There was nobody to, to respond to it. Right. And this shit, it turns into a war zone that, uh, I mean the, the police precincts getting shot at at night when, when the sun went down and it just, I mean, shit is bad y'all. So what's, what's happening in Livingston Parish at that time? Katrina comes through and with the next day when the levees break and all that and then uh Willie Grace was the sheriff and he actually sent our special response team, which I used to be a member of and I got off of because of my career in detectives, but he sent our special response team to New Orleans to help out. And they were actually one of the first groups to put boots on the ground in New Orleans after the levees broke, before the before the national guard the i think even the state police but our guys were down there first and trying to help people trying to restore some type of semblance of order now it was bad and i remember one of the guys telling me that they followed an opd officer new orleans police department officer into a a jury store somebody kicked in the door and they go in and and they don't know this officer right and they just happen to enter after he entered and this dude's Loading up on jury himself and they, they got out of the way. What are you, you going to do? They have no authority to arrest. It's out of their jurisdiction, et cetera. So it's just a real, real bad time. Now, when they did organize a response, however many days later, they started sending buses down and then started evacuating everybody from New Orleans because there was nothing there. I mean, everything was underwater. The levees are still broken. I mean, it is literally flooded. Well, Our SRT was down there, and uh, we were getting evacuees in all the time. We had shelters that that were open in Livingston Parish, and they had to be manned by law enforcement 24 hours a day. I'm talking about these people didn't have anything, but then once they started sending the buses down there and getting all these people out and taking them all these different shelters all over Louisiana and ultimately Texas and Arkansas, in Florida and everywhere else in the world, it was just bad. I mean, where are you can put hundreds of thousands of people. So we're working nonstop, and we're working, of course, the aftermath of the hurricane. But then you're working around the clock. You got a command center, at different shelters, and you have to you have to guard them. And buses would come intermittently and drop people off. It was a couple of days into the evacuation process, and I was actually working nights as a detective and I remember getting a phone call and it's my ex screaming. I'm just like, you got to get up and, uh, people are getting robbed and raped. And and you know, all this bad stuff's going on get up, get up. I'm like, "Whoa, motherfucker, what, you know, what do you want me to do? And I'm like, so I get up and I call the radio room and stuff and they were getting constant calls. And what happened was the rumor mill had run rampant. All these things weren't going on, but people were calling in things and some of them were but it's not as bad as they were making it out to be. Not like the sky was falling, but it was bad enough that Sheriff Willie Graves called the special response team back and put them in Livingston Parish. And it was, I mean, telling you, it was a real shit show and we have been working nonstop. I mean, I'd get like maybe five or six hours of sleep a day, et cetera. So, but it was bad. Now, what happened was they, they start evacuating people from the uh, the convention center and off the the bridges and stuff in New Orleans. Well, guess what? The A lot of the good people, or 90% of the good people got out first. And the ones who were looting originally and stuff like that, well, they had to get the hell out at some point, too, because there's no more food. Uh, but, I mean, you, you go back and look at some of the footage on the shows, and they got people carrying 80-inch televisions and shit like that. What the hell are you going to do? Still on television in the middle of the storm. You ain't got any power. I never got that one, right? And cops just watching it go on. But I mean, what what can you do? There's no society. It's just mass chaos. But so the people are starting to get out. And then you come to what's left. And the last ones to get out were the worst ones. And I'm talking about the gangs and stuff like that. They wait to the last second and they robbed. They stripped everything that they could, they could carry. And our shelters were full at, at capacity. But when they heard of the buses coming out or Willie Graves heard of the buses coming out with all the thugs on it, the last buses coming out, he was like, uh, not going to happen in my parish. And I'll never forget, they had four buses pull up. It was at nighttime at uh, the shelter. And Willie already knew they were coming. So he had the SWAT team, the SRT team there. We were all there, and the bus driver opened the door, and these people started getting off. Look, I'm talking about people getting off and would have like five or six Tag hours and Rolexes with still with the price tags on each arm. I mean, these are your bad boys, right? And everybody said, uh-uh. And we surrounded the buses, said, get back on. And he told the bus driver, he said, you're going to drive out of my parish. We're going to give you a police escort, and these other buses are going to follow. And if y'all stop for any reason, we're putting y'all in jail. And and Willie didn't play. It was just a really, really crazy time. And I remember talking to to good people in in the shelters. And one guy said he woke up on the second floor of his house that morning after the storm came through. And uh, his wife was in a wheelchair. And he woke up and he puts his feet over the side of the bed and he steps in water. Okay? And he's like, holy shit. And then he's on the second floor of his house. And then... He realizes the water's coming up and it's coming up fast. And he's got his wife he's handicapped. And he's like, what the hell am I going to do? I can't get downstairs. It's already flooded. So he, it's a it's, it's bluebird sky day date now, y'all. I mean, there's no clouds. It's not raining and shit. And he goes and looks out the window and sees massive flooding. And the water's coming up fast, fast, fast. And he said, man, I just started praying. I said, God, please help me. We're going to drown. I can't. She's going to, I can't. And he was, a, I won't say elderly, but I am gonna Probably my age now. (laughs) I guess he was around 50 or something. And he said he prayed and he said, What do you, I watched, he's crying when he's telling me this. I watched in literally a dumpster, a trash dumpster was floating and it floated right to my window. And I was able to pick my wife up and throw her in it. And I got in it and they used it like a boat to hit dry land or they got saved by somebody in a boat, whatever it was. So it's just really, really bad, and we are working around the clock. Everybody's working. You got no time off. And then you got people like deputies like us that didn't even have power yet from the storm. So you're out there doing it, y'all, but just just mad chaos. Now, the Army National Guard comes out. The, the feds come out, and so the guard starts to help provide security at some of these evacuees shelters. And look, these – this place is a fool, y'all. School gyms and stuff like that in the parish I'm talking about. And meanwhile, the crime rate is just rolling, but it's not the mass rapes and shit like the rumors that started with when when Willie called the SRT back. But we got a severe crime rate and we didn't get a day off. We were working, working nonstop. Well, the problem with that is on September the 18th, which would have been I don't know, 10 days or so after Katrina made landfall, Rita forms, okay? Hurricane Rita, and guess what? That bitch has got a bull's eye for us also. And so we're watching it as it's coming in. We're getting ready for it, Uh, and it's another real humdinger of a storm. So just really, really crazy times, and, and, and there's a reason I'm telling you all this, but the— um it just wouldn't stop. Seemed like we couldn't catch a break, right? The um so on September the 16th, 2005, it was at nighttime, probably I don't know, seven o'clock, something like that, and my pager goes off. And I, I think I was in, in the office like catching a few winks or whatever, and they said all units respond to Carol Road and Walker, they Talk, let I say all units, detectives. Respond to Carroll Road and Walker. We have a police officer that's been stabbed. All right, you don't want to ever get that call—stabbed or shot—about a, a fellow brother officer. But it happened. In in so shout out to Astro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples.
3: My allergies are throwing my whole morning off. Do I sound different to you? It's faster, bro. Uses directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose
0: due to allergies. Asta Pro and Go. It's springtime, boys. The grass is green, the birds are chirping, and the kids will be out of school soon. That makes it the perfect time to plan a family vacation.
2: No English translation, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language. Intuitive process? You pick up a language naturally. Designed for long-term retention. Speech recognition. The true accent feature is like having a personal trainer for your accent. Rosetta Stone? So I'm rolling out the door, and they have a TAC-1-1033, 1, which means nobody could talk on it. I'm trying to get information. I wasn't that far off Cal road, probably 15, 15 miles or so. And um, I'm rolling hard. I'm listening to everybody, and they're calling in the ambulance. And it turned out it was the assistant chief of police for the town of Walker or the city, whatever they call it. I think it's town. Walter Daisy was his name. And I would known Walter for years. He got stabbed in the stomach. Okay, so the Acadian, the ambulance is getting there. They're taking him, and um, I'll roll-up and scene. But I got to tell you about Carroll Road. This is what i, I never really got this, and and I'm not, not ever going to throw shade one way or another. But Carroll Road is off a of highway. It's north of. Highway 190. Now, Highway 190 runs all the way across Livingston Parish from east to west, from Tangerville Parish into East Baton Rouge Parish. It also runs right through the middle of, of the town of Walker. And Carroll Road, where he got stabbed at, is really remote. And, and he got stabbed at the bridge on Carroll Road. So, the when I say remote, I mean there's like some big houses on that road it's it's no trailers or or whatever it's big houses but it's not big neighborhoods it's like they're spread out they got like five or six acres each and it's a dark dark ass road right I mean you couldn't find this road if you weren't looking for it if you didn't you didn't know where it was and so I would roll up on the scene or as close as I could and it's black there's no street lights and there there were like uh, security, not security lights, but whatever you call them, yard lights, in some of these bigger homes. But I can see I'm, I'm at. I can't get close to the scene. There's every cop car in the world's there, and Acadian already left Walter to go to the hospital. And so I rolled roll up, and Chief Hunter Grimes is on the scene. And um, you've heard me talk about Hunter before. He's now a criminal investigator with the Louisiana State Police, and. Good friend of mine, we were on SRT together, and um, he would l- end up leaving the Livingston Parish Sheriff's Office and going to Walker City uh, or town, whatever it's called, and becoming a, uh, getting elected chief of police. And so he was the chief of police and we got there, several texts, and I go up and said, tell me what happened. He said, Walter stopped a white male on this bridge for walking on the road and he said he got out on him, and he said they got into like a scuffle. The guy pulled away from him, and he said he, he hit Walter a couple times, and he said then he stabbed him. He said, Woody, he said the knife is still stuck in Walter's stomach. And I said, well, and you certainly don't want to remove it, right? Because all this, these different crime scenes and stuff like that, you show up. If you got a victim that's got something that's an object that's impaled in him, uh, you don't touch it. Because that may be where it's stuck in, maybe pinched down an artery. You don't know. And he said, Woody, he said, I was at I was at the football game. He said, Walter was there with me. It was Walker our High School football game. He said, Walter was there with me. And the next thing I know, 15 minutes later, my pager's going off saying Walter got stabbed. And I'm like, what the hell? You know, and he said, and I get here and he shit he's the knife sticking out of his stomach, you know, and the Acadian gets here and they get him off. He said, I got to get to the hospital. Will y'all please? I said, don't worry about it, dude. We're going to work it. And I mean, You know, cop getting stabbed, big shit. It's big time. And I did tell Hunter, I said, you need to go up to the hospital. And um, we call for a sketch artist. And uh, we'll get a sketch artist up there. And as long as he's awake, and then he said he was awake, and he was, he was talking coherently, but he had lost some blood and stuff. I said, get a, get a sketch artist to get, if we can, before he goes into surgery, make him delay it. Got to get a sketch artist to try to get a sketch of who this suspect is so we have something to work on. If he goes into surgery and he dies, we're screwed. And I said, did, did he call it in? And he said, no, he didn't call it in. calling calling in, y'all, I mean, when Walter, anytime you get out on anybody on a traffic stop, or you stopping somebody that's walking on the road or whatever. You always call your location and say your unit number or the detective number. Say I'm gonna be out on Carroll Road on the bridge with a white male dressed in whatever. Right. That way, if sugar turns to shit, you dispatch your nose to call back and check on you in a couple of minutes. If you if let's say he got stabbed and got incapacitated and couldn't reach his radio, couldn't call for help. Um, at least other units know where you are. Walter didn't call it in. He said he didn't call it in, and I said, well, that didn't really add up. didn't make any sense, right? And here we are on this, what would be if all the cop lights weren't there, dark-ass bridge, and it was kind of a a, a misty, rainy night, but not raining, raining, In anyway, so 100-jet it. He went to the hospital. They got us sketch artist and route to the hospital and all that. Well, I'm not worried about that now, and now we're going to start to work the scene. The state police showed up, a good friend, um, Kevin Duvall, we call him Big Country. Well, let me do, let me back up, let me digress. Hunter Grimes is probably my height in maybe 250 260 I don't know what his weight is, but this dude is a giant. Okay? He has lifted weights his entire life and when I tell you his arms are bigger around than my midsection and I mean he's just giant. He goes around or used to on this Christian Christian group of strong men to different to do performances in different places, and some of you young lifers are not going to know what this is. But we used to have the yellow pages, the big thick yellow pages, like thousands of pages, the big phone books, and Hunter could take one of those and rip it in half from pure strength. So he's a monster of a man, but a gentle heart and a great guy. Now Big Country shows up, he. And I go way back. And, of course, him and Hunter go way back also. But Kevin Duvall, when I first met him, he was working the street. And I was working the street. But he was working the street for the state police as a trooper. And he would move up and become a detective for the state police. And uh, so, anyway, he shows up. And let me tell you why we call him big country. And I I know you all heard me called Brandon Ash for Big Country before because Brandon's like probably 6'6 or something like that. This dude's got to be 6'9", 300 pounds, and he is just massive. And at the time, like me, he had jet black hair. I think he's got a little gray in it like I do now. But Big Country shows up, and I, I told him everything, et cetera. And so he calls out some of his detectives. Meanwhile, the National Guard sent units, if you will, Patrols that were actually working the evacuee centers, the um, all these things. They sent troops out on, on this manhunt. We were trying to set up a perimeter. What Walter said was the guy stabbed him and then he took off running down the road. Well, if if I had handled it, if it had been me and for if the fucker we got lucky enough to stab me, and you're and I can see you running away. I'm going to bust busting caps at your ass. If you're going to run, you're going to run for a reason. I'm going to empty my magazine, even if I shoot it straight up in the air, right? Walter didn't buy a shot. But he gave the direction that he ran in. So we set up a big perimeter, it, and the feds were in town. That, I think we had the U.S. Marshals helicopter with the FLIR system on it, which is a thermal imaging system where you can look down, and you, uh, the body heat glows white, right? So it was huge, massive manhunt. And that's the first order of business. And then Jason R. came, was now the sheriff. He was over the SWAT team at the time. They're setting up a perimeter, directing searches, et cetera. As detectives, we started going house to house. And these houses were a little bit spread out. And I'm sure it's not now. That's how it was back then. We're knocking on every door. We're leaving no stone unturned. And we talked to every single neighbor on the street. And that, that Look, there's no cars coming down the street, but if they were, we stopped them, and we asked them, did they see anything? Did you see anything? The, the BOLO has been put out. The Be On The Lookout for has been put out for white male, um, approximately 40 years old, long, dark hair, and facial hair, and that's pretty much all that Walter gave. He's uh, skinny, uh, um, maybe, I don't know, 5'10", something like that. that. That's what the description of Walter was able to give. Before we went to the hospital, so we're stopping everybody, talking to everybody, hit every single house, talk to everybody. I mean, we just working, and it's a crime scene, and and you know it's, it's got to be worked. And and now Hunter called me, and he said, he said, hey, "Bro, he said uh, we got the sketch artist before he and they took him in for surgery." He said, "I think I got a pretty good sketch. Got a pretty good sketch." I said, "Cool." I said, the man, this time it's past 10 o'clock at night. So it may have been a little bit later when he got stabbed. So in Louisiana, the news channels in Baton Rouge area, they they run, uh, they used to back then, now Fox runs one at 9 p.m., but they run it at 10. I said, there's there's nothing, we can't get it to the news tonight. Let's just sit tight with it. We're still working the scene. we got a manhunt going on, and look, we hunted all night long. Nothing more serious than somebody trying to kill a police officer. All right, so we had the sketch. Hunter stayed for the surgery. We worked the scene all night. And then, I don't know, about 4 o'clock in the morning, Walter had come out of surgery, and they say he's going to live. And then they had to take the knife out of him, fix up whatever he's in ICU. So once we had done all the detective stuff we could on the scene, going door to door, stopping vehicles processing the crime scene we i think we even sent it in for prints and stuff but in, in case the guy had touched the hood you know because walter's story was a little bit iffy or a little bit sketchy i would say and so at some point i left the detective part of it and i went and met hunter at the hospital and he showed me the sketch and it I mean, it's just like the dude described. It's this guy with long hair. I'm actually going to look at it right now. And patron members are getting a video of this. But, but this guy just looks rough, okay? And when I mean rough, I mean he looks from the sketch. I, you know what? I'll never understand how these sketch artists do what they do. It trips me out. Every time I've ever used one, they can they can sit down with a victim of a crime and I'll ask them questions and they start doing it and they'll ask them more questions and they make adjustments. And it's just, it just absolutely blows my mind. I can't draw for shit. And to watch these sketch artists go off of a, a victim's memory and present something that actually uh, turns out to be spot on. And, and it's just amazing. So, uh, uh the only time I've ever had trouble with sketch artists is when the victim was lying about who it was that did the crime. So that's, Tripped me out so I'm looking at it and at this i mean this sketch is amazing that even the hair detail like uh, how it's scraggly and in the eyes were really amazing the mustache just tripped me out the the nose i mean the how they're able to pull this information out of somebody who has a knife sticking out of a stomach and could die is way the hell beyond me so we get the sketch, and I said, "Well, I said, Hunter, we got to get this to the news stations. We'll get some units to take it to every station. We also need to get it out to all the uniform patrol guys and see if anybody recognizes them." And and but it was, it was so much going on, y'all. This wasn't happening instantly. But the most important thing was to get to the news stations so they could start running the sketch in the morning. And so that was done. I think uh, I actually took it to. WBRZ channel two, myself, and I, I think Hunter sent somebody to WFB and, and NBC. But now it's daylight, and you know it, it, the sketch comes out in on, on the morning news, and of course it's the lead story on the morning news. It's the it's the uh, lead story on the noon news and coming evening news, and then that the whole day goes by. We're working, no sleep. But everybody says, and, and Stan Carpenter and all of them say, "Oh, it's got to be a, a New Orleans evacuee that did this." And and you know, this didn't really sit well with me. You know, I I I didn't I wouldn't buy that, but I didn't know what else to think, and I was exhausted. And I remember going to my office in uh, that night and praying nobody would call, nobody would kill somebody else or whatever. I just remember being so tired, and I put my feet up on my desk and said I'm going to nap for just a few minutes. Now, when I do this, and it holds true to this day, that I do my absolute best thinking at like 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning when I'm in a semi-conscious state, and it's just and it's when my ideas come to me. I don't know how to explain it. But I had that sketch in front of me, and I was sitting there thinking, you know, that you you just don't start out stabbing a cop, right? And and I'm thinking about all these thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of people we had extra in the Paris from New Orleans, that all the evacuees and stuff, and they they had some evacuee shelters that uh, weren't that far from Carroll Road, but remember Carroll Road is north of 190, and it's Rule, you got no business. You, it's not even have a divider line down it, y'all. When I say road, it's, it's a blacktop street, but it's a long one, a, a country street. So I, I, I'm sitting in the chair and you know, I'm laying there and the, I doze off and I remember jolting to waking up and I was like, holy fuck, it hit me. I said, the, you know, I went back to my thought of, this, you know, guy didn't just start out stabbing somebody. The first thing I did, I ran and I got my, I had an unmarked truck at the time, a extended cab F-250 diesel with a cab on it and all that. I said, I, I, I drove back out to Carroll Road and I looked at the spot and I said, there is no effing way that, Somebody from New Orleans found this road. I said, it "Just didn't happen." And then I said, "I said it's got to be somebody local." So, my next thought was, "Who can help me?" All right? And I'm thinking, you know, if it it's if it's going to be a local, you don't just start out stabbing an assistant chief of police. Okay. Even though Walter didn't call it in, his lights were on on the car that he lights this guy up on the bridge and he gets out with him for whatever reason, they come to an altercation and a guy stabs him. No, you don't do that. So my thought in my mind was, when I woke up is this guy's got to be a frequent flyer. So then I, my next step is I'll haul ass to the jail. Why? Uh, and I know, I know this time, by by this time it was really late, and, and I'm gonna tell you about the Livingston Parish Jail. At the time, they call it the Tent Center now or whatever. Tony Edwards, great guy. The, uh, he was the jail supervisor at the time, and Tony started his career with Livingston Parish Sheriff's Office as a reserve. He used to actually his his <laughs> his sister in law was one of my all time favorite dispatchers and good friends, and we hung out on her days off, and his wife. Uh, Kim, she's a real sweetheart, also. And Tony was an electrician by trade, and Made had a successful business, made great money, but Tony got the police bug. And if I could tell you that I may have rode him around once or twice with me in uniform patrol before he was a reserve deputy, then just say so he could be in on the action. Because remember, I told you when I was on the street, once the call volume went down, I was out there hunting. I was getting in a foot pursuit or a vehicle pursuit or something every night. Let's just say... He may have rode with me when I didn't have authorization for him to do it, and he got bit by the bug. So then he became a reserve deputy, so he could ride with me, and I got to train him. And and he now he's still working as an electrician. He's got a beautiful family to take care of and all that, but he was bit by the bug. He had it bad, and the the um, uh, so he started. He went through the reserve process. I, I was his field training officer, and. Then he decided he wanted to come to law enforcement full time and as. He wasn't post-certified, and that's police officer standardized training. I think uh, uh, what it stands for. Post-certified is when you have to go to the academy, and it was a L- at LSU at the time. But Sheriff Gray's hired him one and put him in the jail. And I told him, I said, he, uh, he he called me, said he said Willie offered me a position starting the jail, and said he'd get me on the road eventually. I said, I mean, I said, dude, if you can f- financially afford to do it. You need to do it. Everybody starts, started out in the jail. I didn't, uh, but I started out in the Department of Corrections. But even Sheriff Farr started out in the jail when he was young. And uh, I said, you, with your work ethic. Now, Tony Sharp, and he, he's probably the hardest working dude you'll ever meet. And he picked up on everything so fast on the law enforcement part. I said, Tony, I said, you are going to love working in the jail because I think everybody should have to start out working in the jail because you get to know the people that you're going to be dealing with when you go in uniform patrol. Tony's problem was he started out working in the jail. You know, I hate to say this, but it's kind of true. There's two kinds of people that work in the jail. The ones who are passing through or, you know, the the younger guys are trying to get through or the guys are trying to go post certified. And just like I told you, in my department of correction stories, you have some of the the worst people that work in a jail and they don't want to do anything but draw a paycheck. They want to go sit back on their pod or their mod or whatever they call them, their cell block and just do their 12 hours and go home. But Tony got there and he started and I knew he would, he rose up he made like assistant supervisor, like in no time they moved him from the back to the front because he went in there, he busted his ass every day. And then they moved him up to booking. Now great personality, uh, Good old, good old country boy, and, and he had it. The booking officer was a big deal too. I mean, he got to see all the shit. Everybody we brought in, from the drunks to the murders to whatever, he processed them. He did it, but he did it so well he made jail supervisor. I'm talking about like in a matter of months, and in I don't know what the exact time frame was. It was the fastest I ever saw anybody make jail supervisor. I can tell you that. So the Livingston Parish Jail at the time, the nine one one center was the same thing, but it was inside. You pull up to the jail, you had to get buzzed through the, the interior door, and you're looking at the control room, which is where the jail supervisor and the matron are. And the matron generally works all the keyboard stuff. But sometimes, it, They, Karen Orchelana, a Dream Team member, she's awesome. I mean, she, she got stories for days about everything. So you, get, you had to get buzzed into the control room, and if you're going to our 911 where all our dispatchers were, you had to walk through the control room at the time, and then, and there was this inner room inside the heart of the jail where all our dispatchers were. So anyway, I go in, and it's like 4 o'clock in the morning or something. I said, Tony, he said, what's up, bud? He said, he said, what's going on? I said, look, I got something to show you. I needed need you to look at it. He said, what is it? And I said, I got a sketch, the composite of the guy who stabbed Walter Daisy. And he said, "Well, give it to me, and let me look at it." And I'm, I'm thinking, you know, if, if if this guy's a frequent flyer, Tony's gonna know him for sure, right? Because he know, I mean, knows everybody's coming in and out. And so I gave it to him, and he looks at it for like not even three seconds. He looked back up. He said, "You shit me?" I said, "No, that's it." He said, "He said that's he said that's uh, Stephen May." I said, who is Stephen May? He said, he said, this motherfucker just got out, Woody, like two weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago. He said, that's Stephen May. I said, are you sure? He said, dude, I'm telling you, this is Stephen May. He said, watch this. Now, the jail, they, they cook all their own food and stuff for the inmates and stuff to keep the cost down, I guess, but they have trustees that do it. He said, Stephen May was my trustee, he worked in the kitchen every day. He said, watch this. And uh, the, the, they serve breakfast at 6 or 7 in the morning. I don't know what time. The trustees were already up cooking all the breakfast. He went and called one of the head trustees out. He said, come here, man. We go in the hallway. He said, I'm going to show you a picture, uh, a composite of somebody. I'm not going to say anything. I, I, I just want you to tell me if you recognize him. And he gives it to the dude, and, and he said, this is cook. He's been here however long. And uh, he gave it to him, uh, you know, trustees in this green and white striped trustee, Prison thing with his hairnet on, he looks at. It, he said, "That's Stephen." He said, "He just got out and a couple weeks ago." He said, "We worked together for like six months." He said, every every day, every every single day in the kitchen. I said, "Are you sure?" He said, "I'm telling you, that's Stephen May." So I actually got to. to I told Tony, I said, "I need a statement from him saying that he IDs this guy Stephen May, and um, and I'm gonna go back in the control room. I'm gonna go run uh, Stephen May's." date of birth and, and his criminal history. So I went back in, I went into the radio room. That's where they did all the criminal histories, the NCIC searches and everything else. And I gave him the name and I got the matron and it wasn't Karen. I forget who it was, who his matron was at the time, but it wasn't Karen. And, but I, I told her, I said, look up Stephen May. He was your trustee. She said, yeah, I knew he I was. saw him every day. I said, give me his date of birth. And she did. And then I went in, I ran his criminal history, and his little list was long and distinguished. They, they came back. His de, uh, his date of birth, I forget what it was, his date of birth was, but he was 47 years old, and he had been in, in and out of prison his entire life. And guess what? Guess what one of his charges were for that he was out recent for? He just did 10 years for stabbing another man during a fight. Yeah, I mean he did 10 years he got he's which would have been second degree aggravated battery y'all. It's the same thing as attempted murder. There is there was no attempted murder statute in the state of Louisiana. But Stephen Nay got into a fight. Walter Daisy said they got into a little fisticuffs, you know, a little tussle, and he stabbed a dude And uh so a second degree aggravated battery. It's second degree battery you know, in Louisiana, it's Napoleon Dakota Law, it's reversed everywhere else. It's assault, assault. Everywhere outside of Louisiana, assault is the unwanted touching, right? Inside the state of Louisiana, assault is a threat. Everywhere else, battery is the threat. In Louisiana, battery is the unwanted touching. So you can go from simple battery, like I I slap you in the face, to second degree battery, which is if I beat your ass so bad, that you lose consciousness, you have to seek medical attention, or you're in extreme pain and disfigurement. I mean, it's talking about like you knock somebody's teeth out and shit, right? Uh, Break their nose, whatever. If they have to go to the hospital, technically that's second-degree battery. Aggravated second-degree battery is a second-degree battery with a weapon, meaning you shot someone, you stabbed them, you beat them with a pipe, whatever it may be. Stephen May's out on parole, For aggravated second degree battery, he stabbed another man during a fist fight or during, well, I guess it wasn't a fist fight, during a knife fight. And, but he's his, he is a definite frequent flyer. So it fits. I call the powers that be then and I started calling Stan and all of them. I said, listen, I got it figured, Hoss, and I, I know who it is. I know who it is. And he said, what do you mean? I told him. And he was like, God damn, man, I can't believe that. Right. I said, "Look, I'm getting statements from everybody up here that I can identify him so to start building probable cause. Because you know, Stephen May was a frequent flyer, and the this in, this is going to be if, if Walter didn't die is going to be if he dies, it's a death penalty case, and then he's going he's going to get the uh, the needle. But if he doesn't die, the the very least we're going to charge him with is." Uh, basically, uh, attempted first degree murder of a police officer, and so I just told him, "said so Look, we got to take our time. We got to do this right, and, and start working the system." And so, y'all, I'm going to conclude this episode. Of Mama said, "You got to tune in next week." This this is one of those stories that can't be told in one part. You're really, really, really going to get your mind blown when you find out what happened in the investigation. So, and it's, it's a really great story. So tune in next week, and I will conclude Mama Said. That being said, uh, a couple of announcements real quick. Courtney Coco, I know we've asked for time, and we asked for this time. And at one point, they told me two weeks, and so I asked y'all to lay off of them. I can't tell you what I know, but I can tell you, that I believe there's going to be justice for Courtney real soon. And I can tell you something else. I promise you this, not tell you. I promise you if 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 the justice doesn't come for Courtney by like the second week of November, all you crew members, are almost 27,000 now on a private Facebook page that if you're not a member, go to it. You have to be approved by our Dream Team moderators and we'll get you approved. But it's growing like 100 people every two days. But it, it's all true crime related. But everybody on there knows who Courtney Coco is. On Fridays, they post their pictures of, of themselves wearing pink, et cetera. And that's like it's true crime stuff on that page also. And and so our numbers on that page are important because if they don't do what they say they're going to do, we are going to burn Rapids ass down, and we're going to do it legally. I'm a, I have a co- a plan. We're gonna call all lifers to the forefront who who care about justice for Courtney, and we're gonna implement the plan, and everything will be legal. But it's gonna be painful as a bitch for Rapids Parish, and and there's all kinds of stuff that I'm in possession of, uh, uh, that and, and a plan that we're we're gonna execute, and we're gonna get justice for Courtney one way or another. And I'd be real surprised if there's not some national media this week that I, I can't tell you about either. But so y'all just be patient. I mean, we're talking about a couple more weeks. I know I've said it before, but this time I'm backing it up with I tell you, if it's not done by Thanksgiving, we will use our numbers. We'll use our strength, and we will get justice for Courtney Coco. All right, we're going to make them act one way or another. And of course, y'all at election, everybody get out and vote. If you're early voting, I don't care who you vote for. If you early vote, whatever, I do believe that the voting is the only way to bring about a change in, uh, in this country, whether it's on the local level or national level or whatever. Now, Miss Barbara Blunt's case. All right. It's being worked, and I'm still getting tips. And there's a couple of y'all having called back this week or, or probably the last 10 days since the hurricane and all that. That, but I am still working and it's being worked in a way that I haven't even told you about yet. So, but please keep sharing Miss Barbara's story. Every time you share, we get tips. And I know y'all hear me say that all the time, but I'm telling you again if I could show you after an episode comes out and I talk about Miss Barbara Blunt, I get more tips guaranteed. So, sharing equals tips. Y'all do that. I'd appreciate it. And follow me on Instagram at real life, real crime and at Overton Woody and you go follow me, take a picture of your following and send it to me at my email, Woody at real life real crime.com or any of our social media pages. And there's a million of them. It seems like you send that to me every 50 of y'all that follow me on both of those and send it to me. I will enter your name one through 50 into a drawing for Either a signed autographed copy of my book, Jesus Held Me, or a real life, real crime face mask, and they're nice, y'all. And they're cloth and uh, washable and reusable and all that. Or one one of our nice window decals, and, and I just did the drawing this past Monday and posted it in the crew page for the first four winners. So the first two hundred that did it, and we have plenty more. So if I didn't read your name out and uh, and one of the drawings, don't worry about it. I'm gonna do a couple a week, so y'all. Uh, Instagram is just another platform that we're growing. YouTube, go watch Rapids Burning on YouTube. Uh, we made it. We we've purchased new computer, video editing equipment, etc. And we made those episodes like more like a movie. As I'm talking, you get the podcast, but then you get to see the people and the places and the bad guys and girls and the attorneys and the, the whatever the district attorney said. Really interesting and for people like me that are more visual um, or who don't know what a podcast like me didn't even, you know, don't even know what a podcast is or didn't a year and a half ago. The, I think it's more interesting for them and it just helps us grow. And and the more we grow, the better it is for everybody. All right. And so um, go check it out. We're going to be backdating episodes. My wife's going to be going in and adding videos. And edit. these videos, y'all, the he's Burning series on the podcast, they actually have news clips in them and news interviews and all these different things. It's a production. So if you get a chance, watch it. The, uh, we're going to go back and do all the episodes. But Rome wasn't built in a day. And like I'm videoing this one now. It's so uh, my wife can go back in and add stories uh stuff to this and so y'all check it out it's real life real crime podcast not just real life real crime you search youtube for real life real crime podcast every episode i've ever done i think is is up there whether it has the video attached to it or not and there's, there's a lot of other stuff like me doing crawfish bowls and and fish fries and hanging out, drinking beer, and answering questions from lifers and stuff like that. And I'm going to start doing some lives from YouTube also. So y'all check that out. Subscribe to it. That way, every time I post something new in there, you'll get an alert. And when you get time, you can go check it out. I guess that's about it. The, uh, I'm going to thank y'all. And listen, I hate to make it a cliffhanger on Mama Said, but it's that kind of story. You got to tune in next week to, to hear the <laughs> when sugar turns to shit in shit starts to roll downhill and stuff. And but it's a hell of a hell of a good case. Anyway. So Lopa, Louisiana Organ Procurement Agency. That's my people, please go to Lopa.org, sign up to be an organ donor. You're not gonna care. You're gonna be dead. Ninety, probably 98% of the people like me, I'm an organ donor, I'm not going to use my old ass organs, right? But 98% of the people don't even qualify at the time of their deaths for their organs to be donated. So please go to LOPA.org, look under Livingston Parish Literacy and Technology Center Criminal Justice students and and tell them that's how you heard about them because that's how I heard about it. Or I had heard about it, but that's how I really got to know them. But they also – so check that box. And, and uh, also Lopez put a box for Real Life, Real Crime. So You can check that also if you want to – I mean, that's, that's kind of cool uh, to get to see some results. But I'm not – I'd rather those kids get the um, – from Livingston Parish Literacy and Technology Center get the credit first. And that's Kelly Jennings, a teacher, um, um, It's Kim Albin. Uh, the principal, and then the representative for Southeastern Louisiana University, and y'all, I've been remiss in not mentioning her. is Miss Crystal Hardison Mascot. She, she has like a three neighbor in it. Crystal, I'm sorry, I'm messing your name up. But the she's also is one of the ones that brought me into the Livingston, Livingston Parish Literacy and Technology Center and took me under their wing. So all great ladies, great programs they have going out there. Lopa, be a hero. Sign up, be an organ donor save lives there are people that are waiting on your organs right now and also they do and we're going to get more into it in, in, in a future episode but the they're doing all kinds of incredible things uh, um so it's a non-profit agency they're not making any money but they are saving lives so be a hero save a life i'm woody overton you host of real life real crime the podcast until next time or ever don't let me catch you down on murder by you. Peace. Get
1: ready.